show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today are psychiatrists Dr. Matthew Boyle and Dr. Rosalie Steinberg of Sunnybrook's Herbert's Brain Sciences Program. More importantly, Dr. Boyle and Dr. Steinberg are fully integrated into an inpatient rehab team at St. John's Rehab Hospital and are supporting patients through psychiatric consultations and follow-up mental health care. In Canada, Bell Let's Talk Day has become the single largest event to raise awareness and combat stigma surrounding mental health in Canada. Welcome to the show, doctors, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Perhaps we could start with a little bit of introduction. Uh, Maybe we'll start with you, Dr. Boyle. Yeah, and so uh, happy to happy to be here again. Uh, maybe I'll talk a little bit about my background. I'll hand things over to Rosalie. And so, I started as a full staff psychiatrist here in 2016, uh, and I work three days a week at St. John's Rehab, and I coordinate education for our residents on the other two days a week at their main campus. And how I sort of came to work here was that there was an unidentified sort of a need initially early on for increased mental health supports among the rehab population. And so prior to myself coming here, there was a psychiatrist who consulted a half day a week and the team was sort of needing a bit more support uh, for patients and supporting their mental health after a recovery from a major injury, uh, like the patient population we see here at St. John's Rehab. And so when I came on board again, I ended up sort of mainly focusing on inpatients, including the amputee uh, population. And as we'll get to talk about, there's a high degree of comorbidities, uh, meaning that there's lots of mental health challenges that can arise when people are in a rehab setting because by definition or to get to a rehab setting you've had a major life stressor so you've either had an amputation a major burn or a major stroke and so I came on board initially and the need was sort of quite significant and my colleague Rosalie Steinberg came on to join me afterwards as well too and so what we've been able to do uh, from that is again we have full consultative coverage to all our inpatient units and we have a wraparound outpatient program so that we can continue to follow patients uh, once they are discharged from hospital for again, ongoing mental health needs that sort of maybe uh, maybe sort of uh, affecting their quality of life or well-being once they sort of leave, uh, leave hospital and uh, one of the things we've value is we're getting to work with the amazing team members and Rosalie and I uh, work quite closely together on a number of projects as well too. That's my long-winded introduction to sort of what we're doing. As you can see, we're sort of passionate about the work we've been doing. So I'll uh, pick up from there. Uh, I joined uh, Matt, Dr. Boyle in 2017 and um, was not surprised, but really a bit overwhelmed at the amount of mental health need that um, our patient population have. Um, We serve a number of populations at St. John's, but the amputee population um, actually um, required a bit more time and attention from us. Um, And many of, and so my background is in medical psychiatry, but also in treating mood disorders, um, depression and anxiety. Um, And I also have uh, training in uh, group Uh, psychotherapy and um, was hoping to bring some of those skills to the amputee population. Um, And so in addition to the clinical work that we do, we've also been able to add residents and add training, um, both for physiatry residents and psychiatry residents to supporting our amputee population, but also just recently got some funding, some research funding Uh, through an innovation grant to develop a group intervention for um, our inpatient amputees because many of the themes that were coming up for these uh, folks were around 
uh, grief and loss um, and how to um, cope with, um, you know, the change in their self-image um, and their self-worth um, and how to um, reintegrate back into um, the community. Um, could they work again? How do they feel about interacting or even asking for help uh, from their family or loved ones? Um, many of the folks that we uh, were treating uh, got into the situation where they had underlying dysvascular or cardiovascular disease and weren't really looking after themselves to begin with. And so they came to St. John's and they had a whole team there. But then what happens when they go home? How do they cope after they leave hospital? Um, how do they learn how to ask for and receive help? Um, uh, you know, uh, now with the, the impact of having lost a limb. Um, so what we're hoping to do is not only treat the depression and anxiety that would naturally go along with um, patients who've experienced limb loss, but also um, what we're hoping to do with this new research initiative is to give them some additional uh, strategies so that they can feel that, you know, to look at the concept of feeling whole again, of developing um, a sense of self-image and self-worth, and to um, examine their own um, relationship with their body, their body image, and also to deal with things like fear of rejection in the community, fear of abandonment, um, fear of isolation, uh, and all of these themes come up um, for this population in particular because they really are, they, limb loss is a loss and, and they're grieving that loss. So we see a lot of those themes with these patients. Right, so you brought the, the the grief, and I was going to ask you about perhaps maybe explore or explain in layman's terms the, the grief cycle that uh, you talked about, just for our, our listeners who may not be familiar with the grieving process that most amputees go through or should probably identify in that in those stages to say, this is where I am with my acceptance of my amputation or my impeding amputation. Because I also want to explore that further with you guys about pre-amputation psychiatry service or psychiatry help. So, um, you know, sometimes we're asked to see patients um, that the hospitalist or the physiatrist identify as needing supports. Um, many times when we go into the room, the immediate reaction is to say, what are you doing here? I don't need you. Um, and so that's sort of the sort of uh, denial uh, stage of grief. Um, and there's a lot of anger too. Um, and we get a lot of anger directed at us and at the team member. Um, so, you know, in terms of the stages of grief, denial, anger, uh, bargaining, <laughs> um, and then acceptance, um, and then maybe sort of reintegration or reconciliation. But the initial reaction that we have, and these are people who've literally just been transferred from acute care down to rehab and they're experiencing for the first time um, their life without a limb or maybe two. Um, initially, the response is uh, frequently that of either denial or anger. Um, and we see that in ways where folks are um, maybe acting out a little bit, um, rejecting of help, 
um, or maybe uh, conflicted because they're help seeking and help rejecting at the same time. They want the help, but they don't know how to receive it or accept it. And there's a lot of ambivalence in the beginning. So um, there are a lot of emotions um, initially that uh, a lot of our amputees experience at the onset. And I would say the first two stages are what we see on the inpatient unit, which is a lot of uh, denial and anger. Um, we also have the opportunity of developing longer term relationships with these individuals and they come to trust us over time, not always, but over time, they know that we're gonna be there for them consistently. And the uh, great thing about St. John's is that we're able to not only um, support them as inpatients, but follow them up afterwards as outpatients and maintain that longitudinal relationship and help them kind of process um, the loss um, and maybe get to a point of acceptance. Um, and all the while, um, we, may, we are also treating underlying uh, depression, anxiety. Um, many folks who have vascular risk factors are at higher risk for mood and anxiety to begin with, just at, at the word go, and then you take away a limb and that's the stressor that pushes them over the edge. Um, many of our patients also express suicidal ideation and uh, um, really have very poor coping strategies. And so we're trying to help them develop those strategies prior to going home if we can. I don't know if my colleague has anything to add. Yeah, no, that was uh, very well uh, said. And I think sort of the uh, what we sort of do in terms of helping people, again, as Rosalie said, everyone will go through different stages of change and acceptance around things, every uh, no two say patients who have an amputation, even if it's the exact same amputation are gonna recover the same, are gonna have the same experience. Some of it will depend on how their family's supporting them, how their sort of job is supporting them, all those other factors other than just sort of the medical side of things will impact how someone recovers and experiences recovery as well too how they've interacted with other team members in the past, what their experience has been like in the medical system. And so it's not just the medical procedure, again, where people recover, but it's, again, really the holistic sort of care around things. And Rosalie and I always tell this to our colleagues, Again, our role as a psychiatrist uh, is one member of the team, but I would argue, again, all members of the team have an equally important role in terms of the mental health and well-being of our patients. And so it's really that sort of teamwork and collaboration that can sort of make a difference that way. And the reason why we sort of uh, try to sort of meet with people early on and develop that relationship with them is again it's been shown in multiple sort of areas of medicine when you have a mental health uh, uh, problem associated with a medical condition so in this case an amputation if you have say for example depression and your depression is untreated, you're more likely to have worse outcomes in terms of your wound care. Again, needing sort of uh, further medical interventions, you're more likely to have a higher risk of having complications and more at risk for having sort of, uh, again, even death in some uh, cases uh, for people who have medical, uh, medical conditions. And so that's why we sort of uh, so closely focus on wellness and mental health as well too, as by treating the depression, you may actually help someone uh, recover from their physical illness, get, uh, get to, into started to do more therapy work, uh, taking care of their wound better, all those type of factors uh, when you address sort of the mental health needs early on can make a big difference in someone's recovery. There, there is some data to show that incorporating mental health may actually shorten one's length of stay for medical illness. Um, and the other thing is that um, some of our, our, our patients um, don't even want to participate in care. And so by involving us, we can get them up, motivated, 
um, supported. So they actually are more likely to participate in all of the other care that uh, the team wants to provide. We briefly talked about sort of getting in to the in front of things um, even earlier on. What about in terms of pre-operation or the pre-impending loss where the person is approached with amputation and have time to think about the amputation? For an example, if you've experienced, you know, if you're experiencing diabetes and a wound that hasn't healed in over a year and six months that will result in amputation. Do you think that there's value, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there is, but obviously, I, 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 you know, I want you guys to expand on that, of getting psychiatric intervention before surgery. Yeah, and so I, I would, uh, Rosalie's probably going to agree with that. I think there definitely is benefit of, uh, again, if someone's struggling with depression or anxiety or other sort of mental health issues are related to uh, related to a medical procedure, whether it's an amputation or anything else, it's definitely worthwhile, again, getting support, um, uh, getting support uh, for that. Again, a lot of the studies have shown, as uh, Rosalie and I have talked about, uh, better outcomes and people have their mental health needs addressed. And so you're more likely to have a better outcome after your operation. Again, if you did have some of the sort of mental health needs sort of addressed fully, the challenges, as you, I'm sure you're aware, is there's sometimes a lack of access to mental health supports as well, too. And so Rosalie and I will often see people sort of after the fact when they've already had their operation because we work in a rehab setting. Um, and so ideally, sort of that would take place. But again, oftentimes the barrier is like, accessing care. It's getting better over time. But again, it is sort of a major barrier for uh, people to sort of uh, reach out and get supports in the system the way it's constructed uh, right now. But, yeah. One of the benefits of actually having us at St. John's is that sometimes we'll see patients who've had a first amputation um, and we've worked with them and we've gotten to know them and they have poor wound healing, let's say, on the second limb. Um, and they need to go back for a second amputation. But because of the work that we've been able to do with them prior to the second surgery, it helps the recovery process when they come back again for their second rehab visit um, and they are um, more willing, more accepting, and perhaps we're treating their depression and they re remain on treatment and they get their surgery and come back and their recovery the second time round um, is better and faster. Um, and we also, when we work with them, we try to help facilitate linkage um, out to the community so that um, if we know somebody was transferred to Sunnybrook from a remote area, let's say Barrie or, or Cambridge or you know Oshawa, we'll try to make referrals so that they can continue to get mental health supports even after they leave rehab. And so we play a facilitating role, not just a treatment role uh, while they're uh, at St. John's. Just talking about getting barriers, uh, impeding loss or before the loss, is there not a program yet where once the conversation starts with a doctor saying, you know, we're going to we're going to have to have an amputation um, as a result of this, isn't there a program yet where the doctors will say, here's your pre pre operative care? You speak to a psychiatrist, you speak to a rehab. A physiatrist, and then you speak to your rehab team prior to having the amputation. So that's sort of not so much waiting for the patient to go, I think I need psychiatric help, but having that open conversation right at the bat as part of your whole treatment process from beginning to end. So I think, Todd, you've just highlighted our next uh, intervention because as far as I'm aware, there is no psychiatry embedded in the preoperative process as far as I'm aware. Now, 
there may be, but I'm not sure that we are consulted preoperatively. Um, unfortunately, we're still downstream from that whole process. Wouldn't it be great to get psychiatric support or mental health support uh, upstream um, before they even come? Um, you know, we'll sometimes patients will see a psychiatrist in the acute care setting, and then we get a handoff down to rehab. But I am not aware of the psychiatrist or mental health clinician at all involved in the preoperative discussion with these patients. So that could be our next research intervention or project to look at. Um, and I wish we had it, but I don't think we do. And uh, just to sort of uh, hit on what Rosie said, I think that would be uh, outstanding if we do have that. Oftentimes, it'll be the surgeon who will have this sort of conversation around sort of an amputation or a surgery, a surgical intervention in this case. And again, it could be easily something that could be part of the package. It doesn't necessarily even need to be, again, a psychiatrist there. It could even be a screening program that you screen someone for symptoms of depression or anxiety. And that way you can say, hey, look, based on the screening, we think you're higher risk for depression. Maybe we need to sort of put these resources in place before you get the operation or during uh, during the time right after the operation as well too and so I think that will be coming eventually, hopefully down the road. It, it, something we're looking for in our Department of Psychiatry called measurement-based care in terms of looking at people even before they come to see us in terms of what symptoms have they been struggling with in order to sort of know how we sort of uh, prioritize what patients get seen sort of when. Because uh, right now, again, we're relying on information that's sort of given to us by other physicians and having those sort of scales or other things may help sort of in this case. The only um, place I'm aware of where there's psychiatry support before an operation is sometimes in uh, patients with complex transplants. Um, sometimes they'll do that beforehand as part of the um, uh, part of the care beforehand. So for example, if someone's getting a liver transplant, sometimes a psychiatrist may be involved depending on the, the individual case before they get a transplant. But for amputee care, I'm not aware of any service that at least exists in the in the, the GTA area anyway. But the, the other population that is extremely at risk and actually may be at higher risk for mental health challenges are the patients who have an unplanned amputation. So those patients who've had no vascular history but had a traumatic loss, so they had a workplace injury. Um, and the unexpected loss of the limb actually puts patients at risk for PTSD, um, more so than our, um, our dysvascular population um, because when it happens traumatically, let's say in a workplace accident, um, these individuals really are at very high risk. And I believe that the trauma program at Sunnybrook is looking at screening these individuals uh, early on in the acute care setting before they come to rehab so that we can um, be more attuned um, and more proactive in engaging them because they are at higher risk. And I was going to say the other thing too, the, the bit different between rehab and acute care. Acute care, the stays will be much shorter. And rehab, the stays are measured in weeks. And so it's usually several weeks when patients are here. And so we often have an opportunity to get to know our patients uh, a little bit better uh, over a sort of time. And you can sort of see, as Rosalie gave an example, PTSD. By definition, those symptoms can't start until one month after a trauma uh, when you can say make that diagnosis. This is not often until they're in sort of a rehab setting where those symptoms uh, may be sort of a bit more prevalent and when we can start some of the treatment as well too. So we do have the advantage in a rehab setting of uh, patients being here longer and getting to know them and being able to support them uh, that way compared to acute care where you may sort of be there uh, for a much shorter length of stay. 
I certainly want to dive more into the the trauma aspect of amputation resulting in a trauma. But from a patient perspective who's just received the news of having an amputation, what sort of signs for myself or my family should look out for? Because I think one of the the stigma is to actually admit that you're having a, a mental health issue. So to even go, oh, no, I'm feeling anxious about this, or is this what I'm feeling is anxiety, or I'm already depressed about my situation now, there's this much more. How do I identify that for myself? And how does my family recognize some of that and actually say, you know what, I think we should go get some help, or I, I for myself, will advocate asking that surgeon for help. Like, what are the signs sort of almost to say, I really think I need some help? I can start with that and Matt can jump in, but, um, you know, sometimes I'll go in and I'll see somebody who's gone through a major life event um, and they'll tell me that they're fine. <laughs> um, and I'm, I know I'm not allowed to swear on the radio, but sometimes fine means effed interior, nice exterior. Okay. Um, and so I ask them, you know, what do you really mean by fine? And, um, you know, I, I try to delve a little more because the initial reaction is to push back, to say everything's good. And I, it's very hard for me to believe that everything is fine. So when somebody tells me instantly they're fine, I'm very skeptical. OK, um, you know, sometimes people will start using substances. Uh, more so. Um, if they had a previous substance history, the substance use um, may turn into abuse um, and they can become uh, trying to uh, numb the pain. A lot of patients have a lot of phantom limb pain and we know that um, phantom pain and psychiatric distress go hand in hand. So when pain escalates, I also uh, ask myself, is that psychic pain or physical pain? Because it could be both. And so really paying attention to someone's pain um, and treating the pain, um, because some of the medications we use for pain uh, and for mood are the same. Um, and uh, the other thing is, uh, is, you know, some individuals will become withdrawn. Um, they may express hopelessness. Um, they may have changes in appetite or sleep. They may start saying things like life is not worth living um, or even more forthrightly uh, state that uh, they'd want to end their life um, from a depressive side. Um, so those are some of the things that we kind of look for at the beginning. And I'm sure Matt can jump in and uh, add to that. Yeah, and what I would say, again, oftentimes as psychiatrists, we rely on family members to be sort of part of a care plan as well, too, if family members are readily involved and if the patient wants them to be involved as well, too. And often family members are a good judge of when someone's sort of not doing well, because, again, as we go in to, say, meet someone, we're just meeting with them for the first time, and their mother or father or brother or sister or best friend may notice that something's off, that they are a little bit more withdrawn than normal, a little bit more down, they're not sleeping well. They're a little bit more anxious than normal. So oftentimes family members will sort of pick up on those cues in terms of behavior changes. They're out of character for that person. And so oftentimes they may be the first people to pick those things up because, again, we're meeting someone for the first time. We may not know what someone's baseline is like or how they're sort of doing, but oftentimes family provides that important sort of piece of information in terms of how someone's coping with things. I have a patient that I'm working with now who um, I've had to see virtually because of COVID. Um, and for, for the first little while, he was really just telling me that things were okay on the surface. 
And then after every appointment, I'd get a very long email from the parents telling me what was really going on. Um, and so it, it alerted me to the next appointment to really dig deeper and to say, you know, so you're telling me X, but I understand from your family that this is what's happening. Now, I'm not allowed to disclose to the family for confidentiality reasons what he's telling me, but I'm always open to receiving collateral information to help me continue my treatment plan. Um, it was extremely helpful to have the family um, provide me some insight because he did eventually open up. He told me he was using all kinds of substances, that he was in a lot of pain, that he wasn't sleeping. Um, and we got him addiction support and, uh, um, you know, um, he was involved in a legal, uh, a legal case as some individuals are, and that was coming up and was a big stressor, but wasn't really talking about it. So um, it's really helpful to have eyes and ears in the community, whether it's a, a, an OT or a social worker or a family member to help us um, manage folks after they go. Now I'd like to talk more about sort of the experience that we have as amputees. So when I was in hospital, I actually read an article during my many stays uh, at St. John's about residual pain. And you touched on this earlier, uh, Dr. Steinberg, about um, residual pain and phantom pain. And I read that it's experienced more by those with traumatic amputation and at high levels of distress and PTSD. Symptoms are often associated uh, with visualizing the the trauma, um, and sometimes even just being near where the site that it happened, as in the physical site where where the trauma happened. And how true is that? And how is that related to sort of the phantom feeling or phantom pain? Um, so I'll take a stab, but um, one of the things that we know um, is there's a concept called total pain, which is... Um, that people who have physical pain, but also compounded with emotional pain, will have what we call a higher total pain score. And so um, oftentimes their patients are asking for higher and higher doses of opioids, when really what's going on is that they're experiencing a significant amount of emotional distress. Um, when we can get in there and actually explore the source of that distress um, and perhaps even treat the um, underlying mood issue that might be there or the trauma symptoms and help with sleep, we'll often find that the demand for pain medication will go down and the subjective complaints of phantom pain will often lessen. Um, or decrease. And so, um, and I work closely with the physiatry staff there to um, medically manage this population because, you know, what we're trying to do is also, and we don't want to create opioid addicts on our way out the door. Um, and so we will strategize as to how best to treat the emotional pain, both with medication and with talk therapy, um, to decrease the amount of physical pain that uh, people are experiencing. And so some of our, our arsenals are the, are in our toolbox are pain meds that have mood stabilizing properties or state or, or antidepressants that have pain uh, reducing properties. And uh, we kind of kill two birds with one stone. Um, and we find that when uh, people are sleeping better, uh, when they're mobilizing, when they're feeling socially supported, they're less focused on their pain symptoms. 
Yeah, and just to sort of touch on what uh, Dr. Steinberg said uh, as well, too, again, oftentimes it's integrative and uh, working sort of with our team members around things. Again, when you treat, again, the underlying depression or anxiety or PTSD, oftentimes people have better outcomes, whether it's in terms of pain, wound care, other things that way. And so that tends to make a big difference for people as well, too. And again, the medications that we use sometimes, the antidepressant medications, not only can they treat depression or anxiety or PTSD, but they also have, uh, they're the first line medications that are used to treat neuropathic pain, which is a specific type of pain caused by damage to nerve fibers. There's also a psychotherapy, again, that we commonly use called mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, that is used, again, to treat nerve pain as well, uh, as well too. And so both of sort of those things can sort of be integrative and sort of used for both purposes to help people on a path towards recovery. We never want to dismiss patients' subjective experience of pain. What they are experiencing is real. But physical pain, uh, whether it is caused by the limb itself or not, um, can be exacerbated by underlying issues. So there's this pain, sleep, and mood triangle. And so I don't just talk about pain in isolation. I talk about pain um, with respect to how are you sleeping? How is your mood? And all of these three, three things together so that I, I provide some education to the patient. I, we never ever say what you're feeling is not real, okay? We do not wanna dismiss what people are feeling. What we're saying is what you're feeling is what you're experiencing. Let's see if we can work on the other uh, aspects of that triangle, your mood and your sleep, and see if altogether uh, that will reduce your subjective experience of pain. And just to sort of touch on that as well too, I'd say every single patient is entirely different in terms of their experience around pain. You can have two people who have the exact same operation, exact same amputation, and two people may have totally different sort of uh, experiences around pain and what it means uh, as well, as well too. And that can depend on genetic factors. It can depend on what other medications they're taking, how they tolerate sort of pain medications. If they have poor circulation, for example, or the pain medications even making it there or their infections. And so there's a whole host of factors that can contribute to someone's experience around pain. What we're seeing now sort of in the COVID world is not uh, now, again, not having as many visitors as you normally would. So not having that family support by the bedside makes a huge difference in terms of someone's recovery process or pain or other things. And so even though two people may have the exact same injuries, uh, the whole sort of story around the patient, again, may be different in terms of how they experience pain based on all those other factors. Uh, again, whether they have stable housing, whether they're on other medications and a whole host of other things that can contribute to someone's experience around pain. So I'm not a, I'm not a pain specialist, um, uh, although pain does contribute to a lot of the mental health presentations. But I know that if we have the opportunity to work with anybody the first time round, um, whether it be for mood, whether it be for pain, whether it be for coping, whether it be for adjustment, social integration. And we have uh, a therapeutic relationship with that person, then it will most likely be better the second time around. Yeah, I would agree with that. Again, it, oftentimes uh, people have had experience around 
uh, around things. It sort of will hopefully be less of a uh, uh, less of a challenging thing for some people, depending on if you address the other factors and it ended up being a positive experience. Um, around things, just like if, say, for example, someone's learning to use a prosthetic, probably when you go to use another one again, you've had that experience of what it was like to wear a prosthetic and other things, um, other things uh, that way. So I think, uh, I think again, it will depend on the individual person how that first sort of recovery process uh, went that uh, went that way in terms of how uh, how they sort of experience pain. Say if they have to have another operation, or other things down the road. I guess one of the biggest challenges I have with all of these things is when an individual comes in with very poor coping strategies um, and they really don't know how to seek support or they don't trust other people or they've had a history pre-amputation that makes them less likely to engage well with others or trust a treatment team, um, or they uh, are very sensitive to rejection or fearing rejection and all of these sort of pre-morbid poor coping strategies, I think are the, the crux of whether one will do well post-amputation or not. Again, I think all those sort of host of factors will sort of go into the individual patient and everyone's story is always different in terms of their recovery sort of process uh, around things. And that's why, again, I think it's so important that um, uh, people sort of uh, get support to address any sort of mental health concerns uh, when it comes to sort of any operation or other things uh, that would bring people into your rehab settings. And, and the other role I guess we play as psychiatrists is not just supporting the patient or the client, but also supporting the team because sometimes patients or clients will come in and they will be challenging and they will have um, difficult personalities or they will be very mistrustful or rejecting of the help that's being offered them. And that can be very demoralizing for the team that's trying to work with them. And so not only do we support the patient, but we also support the team that's trying to help the patient. Right. And so just talking about and expanding on that team, what are your thoughts on peer support right in hospital and also continuing outside of uh, or after discharge? So I am a huge, huge proponent of peer support. I work um, on the days that I'm not at St. John's at an organization called Hope and Me, the Mood Disorders Association of Ontario, where they actually train peer support workers to help people cope with um, a variety of mental health challenges. Um, and I partner with peer support uh, workers um, in that other setting. But what I'm hoping to do with this new research project that just got funded um, is to develop peer support groups in the inpatient unit, in the amputation um, rehab setting, so that people can actually use each other as the best support system to develop a normal coping reaction after their amputation, to develop some group cohesion, to um, recognize maybe some of their own maladaptive coping patterns by talking to other people and learn what's working for other people, um, that they can pick up on some tips and some tools. Um, you know, um, understand that you can rely on informal supports as much as you can rely on formal supports to cope with uh, stress, but also I think also for people to feel uh, and also to decrease stigma, right? Um, so if somebody is not going to want to engage with me as a health care professional, a mental health care professional, um, 
they may be more inclined to talk to their uh, buddy in, you know, in the room, in the in the bed across the room. So I was telling a story earlier where I'd go in, uh, I was asked to see patient in bed A, and patient in bed A said, no, thank you, I'm not interested, I'm fine. <laughs> and patient in bed B um, was very willing and open to talking to me, um, and I would sit down and chat with patient in bed B, and we'd work through some of their challenges and strategies. Um, and then, and then on my way out, patient in bed A would say, "Hey, hey, wait a minute, maybe, um, maybe I, I will talk to you." Or they heard from their buddy next door that you know that doctor, she's not so crazy, you know, she's not all about pushing the meds. She's here to talk to you. Um, and so, the power of peer support can be very strong and very influential. Um, and if you can get one peer champion on the floor, you can influence a lot of other patients around them. Yeah, and just to touch on what was, uh, Dr. Steinberg said as well, too, our hope is to, to expand that uh, not only for the amputee population, but for our stroke population and our other uh, population of patients that we work with at St. John's uh, Rehab. What I would say is oftentimes it's a more powerful message uh, of coming, uh, uh, the experience that people talk about, if it comes from someone who's shared that experience as well, too. And so Dr. Steinberg and I know what theoretically phantom limb pain is, but neither of us have had an oper uh, an amputation. Uh, we know sort of what, again, depression, anxiety is like, but it's a more powerful thing when it comes from one of your peers who already had an operation saying, this is what my experience of a phantom limb pain was like. This is how it affected me. This is how I adapted around things. Uh, this is sort of how I learned to sort of be in a wheelchair. Initially, I wore sort of an example a patient would share with another is I wore gloves when I was in a wheelchair to prevent blisters on my hands. Uh, this is sort of how I adapted without family being uh, present due to COVID-19. This is how I adapted to wearing a prosthetic. And oftentimes, again, patients will lean on that naturally with each other uh, during sort of a rehab setting. So when we're all sort of away for the end of the day in the evening, a patient may sort of who is at the end of their stay may talk about early on this day, hey, I went through that exact same thing. I had phantom limb pain like that. This does get better. This is sort of what helped me. Again, there is a sort of path towards recovery. This is when I started to wear a prosthetic. And so these are the challenges I had when I started to wear a prosthetic. And so all those type of experiences are much more powerful experience than oftentimes than when they come from a physician or an OT or a PT or another team member. It's often more powerful when it comes from one of your peers saying, I went through that exact same thing and this is sort of how it affected me. This is how I coped with things as a result. And so our hope is it would be expanded. Uh, Rosalie and I wearing our other hat, we work in our general psychiatry department at the Bayview campus and we have peer supports integrated uh, into supporting people who have been admitted to hospital, say for mental health reasons. And again, it plays a big factor in terms of, again, reducing stigma, normalizing things. And again, talking about that sort of shared experience of, uh, of a path towards recovery um, uh, that way. And so we think it's sort of hugely important that people have that, people have that in place and our hope would be to sort of expand it uh, to other areas sort of in the, in the hospital. It's been a bit more challenging now due to COVID in terms of limiting people on and off the, uh, with things, but hopefully sort of there'll be sort of workarounds around virtual care and other things uh, to sort of help uh, help uh, continue that. And I would argue that's even uh, more important when people do get discharged from hospital, because oftentimes, again, they have uh, lots of supports in hospital. They have meals provided for them. And someone comes, gives you your pain medications, helps you with your dressing changes. But once you get out to sort of life after hospital, there's often a lot of adaptations that has to take place sort of after that. And that's oftentimes where we'll see people struggle is that sort of initial sort of time after hospital as well, too. I would say the most um, important medication that we can prescribe is hope. 
And um, you don't need to be a doctor to prescribe hope. And hope can be prescribed by a fellow peer or a team member. And um, I think that, you know, we just need to ensure that um, our patients don't lose hope and that they hear from others that they can actually make a, um, an effective transition. Where do you, I, I think education is a huge part in, in anyone's recovery. I did a lot of reading when I was uh, waiting around in hospital between rehab and such. Um, for you guys, what are your thoughts and, or what are your plans moving forward to ensure that mental health is, is part of the care, like I was talking about, from beginning to end, or really from, from pre-op to where we can have pre-op mental, uh, inter- mental health intervention to post-surgery, really, and continuing on after your discharge? Yeah, and so I think the the hope would be again having sort of uh, addressing your mental health uh, just be sort of a part of the normal sort of care pathway afterwards. So just like again, uh, when someone comes to rehab, they see their occupational therapist, they see their uh, physiotherapist, they see a physiatrist. Again, part of it may be identifying if someone sort of has mental health needs that that's sort of readily available uh, to them. So some of the research sort of Rose and I have been involved with with one of our physiatry residents is just looking at the hospital in terms of. Uh, some of the things that we sort of saw early on. The reason why I sort of ended up sort of coming to St. John is there, there was a job opportunity because there was unidentified mental health needs. And then Rosalie came on because when I started here, we went from very little consults to, again, around 15 to 20 or 25 consults a week because there was a lot of unmet sort of needs within the hospital uh, system. So at any one time when we sort of looked at the data, we were seeing about one in four patients who were admitted to hospital uh, for mental health supports when they were here. And I'd say we were a bit unique sort of in the city and, and, and probably in most places in terms of offering that level of support just because, again, the lack of resources that sort of may exist in the system. And I think sort of our hope is sort of with some of the research and looking at uh, looking at these uh, things and uh, things uh, early on is, again, to show, again, if you address some of the mental health needs uh, for uh, for patients, uh, again, after major life stressors, like in a rehab setting, you can make sort of significant impacts not only on the recovery, but oftentimes, again, when you look at recovery, politicians, uh, again, government people may not necessarily care about that. What they do care about is, say, length of stay, how long someone's in hospital, how they recover complications. And again, from studies sort of looking at addressing those things, you can make impacts on reducing length of stay, reducing time towards recovery, reducing hopefully opioid sort of pain medications that someone needs. So all those factors that sort of the, the government sort of uh, people may, may, uh, may look at, uh, again, uh, can be addressed by addressing mental health, uh, mental health needs as well, too. And so that's some of our hope with doing uh, some of the research uh, we've been looking um, we've been looking into is to reduce some of the barriers um, barriers for our people accessing care. And I think your idea uh, that you talked about early on, even having that upstream, I think that would sort of be the ideal world where regardless of the surgery, if it's going to be something like an amputation, a heart transplant, or other thing, that there's some screening sort of upstream to identify people who may be at high risk uh, for mental health, uh, mental health disorders. Because I would argue if you actually treat that sort of early on, you'll, reduce, you'll improve someone's sort of path towards recovery. And you'll actually probably save the healthcare system dollars by, again, people not having as many complications or being in hospital uh, for as long as you address those things early on prior to, say, someone getting to us in a rehab setting. So, that would be my hope for the future, uh, that that would sort of be integrated uh, fully. But that, those are the, some of the things we're looking at towards here. And then uh, Dr. Steinberg will probably talk about the peer support group uh, that she's going to be starting here as well, too. So picking up uh, where Matt left off, um, 
I I definitely the way uh, it works now is that we wait for a referral from either the physiatrist or the hospitalist for us to come and see somebody kind of reactively. What I what I would really like to do is to screen everybody that gets admitted to the floor up front as part of their admission, um, because we know of the high prevalence of mental health uh, issues and substance use issues. We shouldn't forget about that with this population. Um, and so I, I would love to embed like a standardized screening uh, for depression, anxiety, and PTSD for amputees. Um, and in some ways, we're going to do that as part of this research study so that we kind of um, on admission, ask people to participate in a peer support group and then see if the group actually helps improve their mental health outcomes um, versus participants who are not part of the group and seeing if it's effective that way. So, um, and seeing if it's feasible and acceptable. And actually I'm hoping to get peer input into the content of the group to make it something that is acceptable to the patients on the floor. So that's um, that's my hope. The other thing I would say is around education and Matt in, has been our education lead in psychiatry, but, um, we there were never any psychiatry residents or anybody rotating through um, from an educational perspective. And now we have both psychiatry residents and physiatry residents who rotate with us, who now understand the patient's mental health perspective when they work with the patients from the physiatry end. Um, and so we're hoping to build capacity from an educational perspective um, so that we build more of an education program going forward. St. John's didn't have that. And the other thing is that, um, you know, we had to educate our colleagues as to what psychiatry was all about. Now they tell us, we don't know what we did without you. What did we do before you came? Because we're seeing 25 to 30% of their patient population. And the other thing is that that's unique is that we're not just a consultation service and goodbye. We consult, but we also follow. So we are actually embedded in the team like everyone else. That's unique. And I think that that's something that we can document and actually share to other rehab sites. Uh, where the psychiatrist is actually an embedded partner in the team, not just a consultant that flies in and flies out. Um, and so I would, I'd like to be able to share that uh, outside of St. John's to the whole rehab system. Um, and so we're hoping to share some of our knowledge that way. Um, so that's, I guess, where we kind of see the future, which is building education, building research, building mental health capacity, screening, um, and this whole wraparound from beginning to end, I think, you know, upstream is a great idea. Where do you see um, Canada adapting that program quickly? Should it, let's say, you know, be rolled out in the next year or two? You think that's going to be picked up right away? I'd say the main challenge sort of uh, right now um, uh, around things is sort of accessing sort of care around things. And I think that's why, again, having us sort of integrated in the team is uh, very helpful. And why, again, having the capacity to train physiatrists or medical students uh, or, again, even people in family practice around sort of mental health needs, because oftentimes they may be the first avenue for support that not- people see prior oh. to seeing a psychiatry oh. 
team uh, uh, team member. Uh, and so oftentimes there can be quite lengthy waits to see uh, someone because again, there there is sort of a lack of mental health supports and oftentimes it can be long waits to see someone. And so the, hopefully again, again, we're training more psychiatrists and there's gonna be capacity uh, in the future, but I'd say that would be the, one of the biggest barriers to this being integrated. Uh, further uh, further around things and hopefully that will sort of improve uh, improve over time and hopefully with education for other members of the team uh, members of the team and sort of building that capacity outwards so if you teach say someone uh, a therapy called say cognitive behavioral therapy that can be helpful in depression they could go on and teach other people and that sort of capacity sort of builds up um, uh, builds up uh, over time and so I think that would be the hope with the education around these things whether it's through conferences or other things uh, that, that sort of gets uh, more integrated uh, to different programs and again it doesn't necessarily have to be a psychiatrist who's doing all these things it can certainly be other sort of team members that are integrating some of these things for wellness and recovery uh, wellness and recovery around things and as you had spoken to about peer support I think that will play a powerful role in terms of, again, reducing stigma, reducing, again, uh, uh, increasing sort of access to care um, uh, for that uh, particular reason. Because I know what we talked about in the break was, again, if you have a broken arm, you'll probably go see, again, emergency uh, physician right away. If you have a cold, you may go see your family doctor right away. The data sort of bears out if you're struggling with depression or anxiety or PTSD. And again, after an amputation, it's going to be no different, that you may not feel comfortable talking about some of those things or accessing care and you will often access care at a much later date as well uh, as well too because there is stigma still associated with mental health conditions unfortunately so where can people find you or connect with you with regards to the programs and research that you're working on together with st john's rehab center so for me they can just email me rosalie.steinberg at sunnybrook.ca um, and um, I'm happy to respond by email uh, and uh, connect them with our, we have a whole research team. Um, I'm sure you know them, Sander Hitzik and his group, and Amanda and I are working together on this project. So um, we all work together. So uh, there's no door that <laughs> is a wrong door, but if they email me, I can make sure that they get connected. And uh, we definitely would love to in integrate more peer um, support components into the interventions that we're doing. Yeah, and that's similar to Rosalie. I'm at Matthew uh, Matthew Boyle uh, Matthew Boyle at sunnybrook.ca. And again, I would uh, hopefully from one of these, again, we've hit on the importance of peer support. And so there's people out there who are interested in uh, peer support as well, too. I think that would be great if we could sort of build up that avenue for support around things. I know, Todd, you've been sort of heavily involved with that uh, through your work uh, through patient care. And so I think that would be something uh, that would be sort of nice to sort of see as we go as we go forward of having us having that resource uh, for peer support for after sort of hospital care as well, too. Thank you both for being on the show. I want to thank Dr. Matthew Boyle and Dr. Rosalie Steinberg for spending this time with us today. I'll share their links on my website at www.aristotelinga.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The Empty Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The Empty Show Podcast.